0: Well, <clears throat> thanks for your kind welcome. I'm back in a place of uh, many happy memories, but uh, God is no memory. God is here. The Holy One is here. And in that context, I want to turn to this theme, uh, Christ Alone, and to uh, begin by looking at the words of 1 Timothy, and uh, chapter 2, and uh, verse 5, Refer to already. very... Uh, earlier uh, on. And uh, we have a reminder here uh, there is one God and there is one mediator God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God and one mediator. You have discussed already the great issues of uh, Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide and Sola Gratia. And now we come to Solus Christus, in many ways the most fundamental uh, of all these uh, alone words in Reformation theology, because uh, at the end of the day it all does come back to Christ. Uh, The Bible points to him, uh, our faith is in him, and God's grace incarnate in him as our Lord and our Saviour. Uh, we have the emphasis here on Christ's all mediatorship. Uh, there is one and only one mediator, and it is, of course, uh, a Bible uh, doctrine before it uh, ever was, a Reformation doctrine. where are told under God so much. Uh, it's a rediscovery, not an invention uh, of the Reformers. Uh, the word mediator, or Mesites in this context, refers to Christ as a middleman, Uh, the one uh, between uh, God and the human species. He speaks uh, for God uh, to us and speaks for us to God uh, and acts for God in the work uh, of our salvation. And we have the context in the Old Testament, of course, we read in uh, the the Pentateuch, where we saw that great vision uh, on Mount Sinai, that dramatic moment, that mountain that burned with fire. Remember how the people then uh, said to Moses uh, to come and act on their behalf because they said or thought uh, we don't want that mountain to speak to us, that fire to speak to us, so uh, when you go and speak to them and then come and tell us what the fire is saying. We can't uh, go close to him, we can't ourselves approach him. So when you go and uh, learn from him what he has to say to us and speak for us to God. But it's a very uh, fundamental human instinct, this sense uh, of the awfulness of deity, the distance between ourselves and God because of our uh, createdness, because also uh, more fundamentally uh, of our sin. And how can we, in finitude and in sinfulness, how can we approach the fire, this mountain that burns? And so, in all cultures, we have a need for a mediator, uh, some uh, person or uh, class who act for humans in relation to God. And uh, the Reformation, of course, the Primitive Reformation Church uh, there was a large number of such mediators. We had uh, uh, saints and angels. We had, uh, we had the priesthood. We had the papacy. All of these acting as go-betweens between God uh, and the members of the church in Western Christendom. And above all, of course, the Virgin Mary, the so-called Mother of God, who spoke to her uh, to her august son, on our behalf, a sea, as a sea, as a fever, uh, some kind uh, of burning mountain. Luther comes and protests against that whole emphasis on a multi-mediatorship and says there is only one mediator, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, only one go-between between ourselves and God, only one who can speak for God to us, and for us to God, and in him alone, God's grace is incarnate. And we have this great, almost simple concept of Christ as the one and only way to God. We come to God through him, and there is no other way but this one way to God. And so, we come to this uh, uh, foundation concept, Christ Christ as the one go between, between ourselves and God. But then, as Calvin began to reflect on that idea and to focus on the Messiahship of Jesus, he saw that he was anointed as Messiah for this specific role. The Messiah is the anointed mediator, and God's Spirit rests on him uh, for the purposes of his mediatorial work. And Calvin ponders and sees that uh, the Messiahship is linked to three great offices, the prophet, priest, and king. All of these were anointed as specific offices. Now, Christ has one office, that is mediator. But within that, there are those three subdivisions, those three functions of prophet, priest, and king. And so let's grasp that, this one mediator, this one bridge builder, this one go-between between between ourselves and God. But as such, he functions in those three different ways as prophet, priest, and king. And he is eventually the only prophet and the only priest and the only king. But that's linked to three other concepts or needs of our human spiritual condition— Uh, our need for knowledge, our need for forgiveness, and our need for divine protection. And in all these, we have a link between the theophages, prophet, priest, and king. The prophet brings knowledge, the priest, forgiveness, and the king brings protection and deliverance. And I want to build my thoughts, such as they are, uh, around those three notions. First of all, in Christ we have the knowledge of God. A knowledge is fundamental to a Reformed religion, because without knowledge there can be no faith and no godliness. Augustine said famously, How can I call on you unknown? If we don't know God, we cannot call upon God. How can we trust someone that we don't know? Or, as Paul says, how believe in someone of whom we haven't heard? So, knowledge is fundamental. I want to come back for a moment to Luther here because Luther began to be very concerned about the tendency among Protestants to focus uh, on the abuse of the papacy on such things as the Uh, corruption of monasteries and the uh, immorality of priests and uh, uh, papal abuse and so on. he He said, these things don't matter. They're not the real issue. It's not these corruptions that are the problem. The problem, he said, is not the piety of these men, but their ideas. It's what they preach and teach that does the damage. They teach against uh, the Bibles being the only authority, against justification by faith alone, against Christ alone. And it's in those errors that the poison lies. And he used that word deliberately. He said, we always said, a little poison spoils the whole drink. And therefore, he says, it's the ideas we must focus upon. And we owe our ideas as believers, of course, to a great prophet to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he comes as God's own uh, spokesperson, as a prophet who has had uh, an audience with God, as a son who alone knows God the Father. He comes from that intimacy from that eternal familiarity with God as Father, and comes and tells us, gives us an idea of who and what God actually is, and what God wants, and what God offers. And so he comes as, at one level, the revelation of God, at another, he has revealed God, but above all, for the moment, he is himself the revealer of God and tells us what God is like. Now, he's done it, of course, uh, through the Old Testament prophets because he endorses all that they teach. And again, he does it through the apostles uh, after the resurrection, again, commissions them to be his own mouthpieces. But also, in his own life, of ministry, we have the same emphasis on Christ as speaking. And the remarkable thing is, the emphasis here on the orality, on the spoken word in the Lord's life and ministry. Some of folks say to me, why don't you write? And okay, that's in its own way okay. But the Lord wrote nothing. But the word spoken through his own personality, in his own unique way of communicating and sharing with us some of what he knows about God as Father. That's the glory of Christ as a mediator, as our prophet gives us a correct idea about God. Now, of course, I listen to add in this postmodern world, We don't. He doesn't tell us all he knows, and we don't grasp all he teaches us. But yet he gives us the truth. I am the truth, and he speaks the truth, and he does that as he says, as I said, orally through the spoken word. I can't go through the various ways he does that, but just give us some examples to remind ourselves of what he did, did come and teach us what ideas he left us with. For example, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. And we know so well, since we're three, four years old, our Father which art in heaven. And yet the glory, the sheer glory and uniqueness of these words, because no Jew before Jesus ever, ever, ever addressed God like that and called God Abba. But Christ says to us, you call God Abba. (laughs) <laughs> the burning fire. This terrifying mountain call it call him Abba Father. This vision of God's paternal care. And as Calvin said, that's what faith is. It is a persuasion, it is a certainty of God's good will towards us. And that's so basic to the Lord's teaching that on our knees, yes, we know we're approaching the mountain that burns with fire, and yet this very same God is my Father in heaven. This one who gives me daily bread, forgives my sins, protects me from evil. That God is our Father in heaven who cares for us in every aspect of our lives. And so there we share in the measure of faith, in the intimacy and boldness that God's eternal Son has with his own Father. And it's so important to grasp that, because sometimes we see God only as the holy other, as the awesome, dreadful tremendous God makes us trembling, and I don't want to lose it altogether, but still, this God of uncompromising integrity, this God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, this God is my Abba in heaven. That's what Christ, the only mediator, says to us. That is what God is like. Is your father? Or take another key moment in the Lord's teaching ministry the, the parable of the prodigal son, or has been called the waiting father. It may refer to the prodigal son in the far country of unbelief, or of rejection of God, or to the believer backslidden who comes to herself for himself. And we go back to God. We've all been there in the far country in one form or in another. But however far we've gone, or farther distance, or deeper degradation, or tremulous our hearts as we turn, or hesitant our pace, still we find us. Not a burning mountain, not a fire, but the waiting Father who comes towards us, towards the penitent in the embrace of his own love. That's the idea that that God gives us. Now, I know it's not the whole truth. I say again, Christ endorsed the whole of the Old Testament. But there is nothing there comparable to that parable of the waiting Father. I don't know how low us we get in our spiritual despair or how we think it unimaginable that God would welcome us back. But the Lord is saying go back because you're guaranteed a welcome. If you've never been before, never come to yourself till now, then having come to yourself and done the most difficult thing a man can do, that is, face the truth about yourself, and then go home. Or if, having once gone home, you have backslidden and you know the depths of your own unworthiness, then again, go back, because you have this Christ-given idea, the idea of the waiting Father. And again, go back to that enacted word on the cross of Calvary. It has, of course, its own orality— in all the Lord said about it before it happened, and the words he spoke on the cross. But it's also itself an acted word where Christ says, not only, this is how much I love you, you and the world, but also this is how much God loves the world, because he gave his one and only son. And all he asks is a response in faith. Now, whether condition or not, I leave aside for the moment, but there is such a disproportion between what God has done for us and what God requires of us. He gave a son, of us, of me and you, it requires only faith. And I add just one more thing to this, and that is, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There is no bondage at the bondage of ignorance. Every dictator and tyrant knows that. But the truth makes free, and Christ, truth above all truths, makes free. It frees from the burden of guilt. It frees from the fear of death and judgment. And it frees from the tyranny of human opinion and the peer group pressure and prejudice. Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then secondly, in Christ alone, we find forgiveness. And go back again to Luther, and what a problem that was. How can I, Martin Luther, how can I be right with God? And he knew, as few people post-Moses knew, he knew that there dread. Or oh, that mountain that burned with fire, this God of infinite and demanding rectitude, this God of whom once said, God forgives but condones nothing. How can that God, how can he forgive me? And Luther, of course, as you've been told him, should sure time and again. He did so try, he tried so hard to earn that righteousness uh, before God. He struggled in self-denial, sleeping on stone floor, self-flagellation, fasting over to the point of death, to, to earn righteousness before God. And the struggle drove him only to despair and almost broke him to the point of insanity. But then gradually, and it it was gradually, comes to see what you've seen already, justification by faith alone. And in that discovery, gradually, dawning the dawn breaking, there he found his peace with God. But that idea, and again it is an idea of faith alone, it's an incomplete idea. Because then we ask, well, faith in whom? Or faith in what? And that brings me back again to Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. Now, the medieval church, of course, it had faith. But here we have this emphasis on faith in Christ alone, not in my own works, my own experience, my own sincerity, my own doing my best, but on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. My faith is in him as the one person on whose activity my standing before God depends and depends absolutely and exclusively. Nothing else but what Christ did has a bearing on my standing before God as a judge of all flesh. But, of course, that's leads to the second idea I mentioned of Christ as priest. Because our faith here is above all faith in Christ as priest. And what does a priest do? We find the word priest or used to Christ only in Hebrews. And it also tells that a priest does one great thing he offers gifts and sacrifices to God. And that's what Christ did. He didn't come and simply teach, though that, of course, wasn't indispensable. But he comes and gives himself an offering for sin. If I can go back further, he didn't only negotiate as mediator between God and the human race and reach an agreement with God about our salvation. But he stands surety and he says I will pay their debts and I will bear their sin. I'll atone for their sin and by that atonement I will reconcile God my Father uh, to the human race. And on the cross That's what he does, that's what he did. And Luther goes on to tell us how Christ becomes the greatest sinner that ever was. And when Simon Rutherford there read that, he shuddered and disagreed. But I think it's tremendous, and it's so, so important, because he's bearing the sin of the world, as an entity, as an organism. And Luther goes on to say that he, be, eh, he, he became David's sin, and he became Peter's sin, and Manasseh's sin, and you can mention all the most uh, deeply abandoned sinners that God's grace reached. And then, you know, Christ became the sin of each of these, and on that cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin. And in Hebrews we have this great contrast between the Aaronic priests of the Old Testament and Christ, our great high priest. And one fundamental difference is this they went in with blood. Indeed they did. The blood of dumb animals, and he goes in with blood, but not the blood of a dumb animal, but with his own blood, with a Paul call so boldly the blood of of God, the blood of His own person, and if I can go back again to the covenant idea, which I don't want to to, to linger on too long, in that agreement between God the Father and God the Son that lies behind His coming uh, into uh, this world, the negotiated price. Of redemption. That is, of a redemption compact, which has your name on it. The price is the blood of the mediator. Doesn't only negotiate, but says that he will meet the conditions. And on that cross, the blood of God's eternal Son. That blood is shed. The obedience given in her place is that of God's own Son. The one enduring the curse is God's own Son. The one who, in those enigmatic words, descends into hell before he dies, or in dying, is God's own Son. It is, yes, my Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. But it's not simply that official, my Saviour, it's also God's beloved Son, this person of divine grandeur who obeys in my place, pays my debts, and cries on the cross of Calvary, last it is finished die, paid and full he cries our debts paid and full That tremendous idea that when we stand before God as judge do you know that you owe him nothing? Cancelled, paid in full. Hide all my transgressions from you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now a risen saviour and a glorified priest, but still priestly active, interceding for you and for me, and just a word on that. He does was one who was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who has stood in the stream of all our human tribulations, all the crushings that our human spirits know, All the emotional turmoil, he has been there. And so tonight, many of you perhaps like me, with remarkably problem-free lives, but not all of us. And it's so important to know that the high priest can turn to his father and say, I know how he's feeling. And I know how she's feeling. Because I have been there. I have been flesh and blood. I have been tempted and tested. I've suffered loss. I've suffered fear. And so, Abba, remember them graciously and give them what I've earned for them by my death on the cross. And then at last, the emphasis on our salvation requiring divine protection and deliverance. Because we need a king. Because we live in a world where we're subject to so much danger and so much temptation and so much pressure, not only secular, but demonic. Because every day the Parliament of Pandemonium meets to plan its strategy, and it has one core element that is your spiritual overthrow and your apostasy. That is, the whole policy of pandemonium. And here we are, so frail, so fragile. Experience isn't enough. Knowledge, ideas even, aren't enough. Where then is there an enough in that great principle, a sovereign protector I have, unseen, yet always at hand. And I come back again to Martin Luther. He speaks at one point of the wonderful jewel between himself, between between, between Christ and the devil. How on the cross you have this mighty battle between the mediator and the powers of darkness. Because here, Satan thinks that he has him. And he will pull him down to death and hell and Hades and pull all his children down with him. Why? Because the devil sees Christ is bearing sin. And as a sinner, he has to go, come down with me to hell. But Christ, fights the battle. And the battle is to complete an atonement for our sin, to bear the curse, to go to that dereliction, that place that love cannot reach, to face and bear in its own person what our sin deserves. And you know, it's not in the pain as pain or in suffering as suffering that the wonder and the virtue lies, but in this in the quality of that dying, its quality as obedience, its quality as loving obedience. Because right through that struggle, that titanic struggle between Christ and the demonic. He loves. His love for God doesn't waver. And his love for humanity doesn't doesn't waver. And his love for you as a believer doesn't falter or waver. And so at last, that obedience it robs the devil of his power. He is no longer the prince of this world. He is cast out. And how glorious is that? Yes, we live amid many dangers, toils, and snares. And sometimes we think, oh, here we are, poor believers living in enemy territory. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. That's not true. Because this world is not any longer the devil's territory. There's been a change of regime. And now every inch of this planet and of this almost infinite universe Belongs to you, Lord and Savior. He has bought it with his own blood. And you can never be in a place that doesn't belong to Christ. And furthermore, I can say government forces are never far away. I think some will neglect to think of the angels so often but they're there, too. The glory of the Lord is shining all around. We have, indeed, the sovereign protector. But then this king is a Davidic king. He's a shepherd king. That shepherd, that king who carries The lambs in his bosom, and gently leads those that are with young. And how as a good shepherd, he says, was John chapter ten, the Father has given them to me. God in his eternal, invincible, infallible determination, gave you to Christ and said to him hold her and bring her safely home. And no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. Of course, we are kept by God's power through faith. And you must exercise that faith. And you must keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And you must follow the voice of the Good Shepherd. But still, your confidence lies in those almighty hands. When I read these words, my mind goes back to the broadcast made by George VI on Christmas Day, 1939. 1939 when uh, the world faced the dark present and an even darker future. And the speech closes as the king stammers these great words from a you know, 20th century American poet and uh, Fiona Alaskans I think it was, And these lines came with John 10. No one can pluck them out of my hands. I said to the man standing in the gate of the way, in the gate of the year, give me a light that I may thread my way safely through the darkness. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God. And that shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Put your hand in the hand of God. May God bless to us this word.